The Retrograde Approach Podcast, Episode 7, Inferingual Bypass. Welcome to the Retrograde Approach Podcast. My name is Dr. Yegisan Skwaran and I am joined tonight by your friend and mine, Dr. Sam Farah. Yogi, how are you? Good to be back. Thanks, man. Sorry, apologies for the uh, uh, slight delay in this podcast going up. Um, I've been busy. You've been busy. We've all been busy. Mate, that's a lie. You've been a loser. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. I've been busy, everyone learning sure sure um sam at the start of this podcast uh just a couple of things um uh, just to sort of uh, keep our listeners up to date with the goings on um going forward we'll aim to have a, a new release date with uh, podcasts coming out on a thursday for those of you who are subscribed and following us that'd be the day to uh, look out for it um we also want to extend a very warm thank you to everyone that's got in touch with us um, and shared their feedback with us in regards to the podcast so far. We've genuinely appreciated interacting with you all um, and we genuinely do appreciate uh, your listenership. So thank you very much. Uh, Sam and I have some great ideas going forward and hopefully in the weeks to months ahead we'll also have some guests that will uh, come on to the podcast as we um, broaden our discussion into other areas in the vascular surgical practice um, just to uh, expand everyone's horizons on the topic uh, and please feel free to reach out to us via twitter instagram or via our website vascular.fm provide us with any feedback Oh, that's good, Yogi. I just think we've been uh, pretty much overwhelmed by the uh, positive response. So motivation to continue with the podcast, unfortunately for some perhaps, but uh, no, it's been uh, great. We uh, always enjoy um, getting random messages from people we haven't heard from for some time saying, hey, I heard you do this and it sounds really great. Keep doing to keep doing it, keep uh, persevering. So uh, yeah, Yogi and I, share those messages between each other we find them um really motivational so thank you but yogi this is a good episode this is a great episode um sam um when i got asked in my um interview for vascular surgery why i wanted to do vascular surgery was because i love fempop bypasses who was interviewing you and did they tell you straight away that you're a loser because (laughs) if i was interviewing you you, mate you're a loser this is not being edited uh, out, by the way, Yogi. This is that's. I, I, uh, the the honest truth is, I have subsequently spoken to both interviewers that were on that panel, and both of them looked at each other aghast, um, and, and said, "And they how, made a how do we let this guy in?" They made a unanimous decision that yes, you you are most definitely a loser. <laughs> Look, you know, fempop bypasses are akin to. A total knee replacement. You take someone that is crippled by 
some form of atherosclerotic or acute pathology or in some cases perhaps not even truly symptomatic from uh, underlying popliteal artery aneurysm but something that's been innate and slow growing now reached treatment threshold but you are able to return a person to a degree of functionality after open revascularization and in the era where endovascular techniques for revascularization um, is largely the standard of care in a lot of units around Australasia and around the world. Um, being able to do um, open revascularization, especially in the form of a inferior bypass, remains um, a fundamental principle for trainees and surgeons alike. I think as uh, vascular surgeons, yogi is a, it's a real attribute that sends us, sets us apart from um, other endovascular specialists where we see and we can offer um, both open and endovascular reconstruction. And we know the positives and negatives of each. That's right. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, one technique is not um, the be all or end all. Um, there are going to be a variety of patient factors that then subsequently affect the durability um, or the functionality of performing one over the other. Um, however, we, like you said, we're very uniquely placed to um, be able to selectively pick um, what is the best uh, operative approach, whether that's an open endovascular and in the new age of vascular surgery, a hybrid, uh, hybrid interventions as well. So Yogi, why? Uh, so I think we've, we've entitled this episode infraringual bypass, but for someone uh, who's not a vascular surgeon, what does that mean? What's that? What does that term mean? Yeah. So uh, an infraringual, uh, I guess infraringual by, by nature refers um, to below the inguinal ligament um, and bypass surgery is the utilization of co um, conduit, whether that's autologous or prosthetic um, or some form of um, cryopreserved um, equivalent um, to reconstruct um, arterial flow from the top of someone's leg or from a site of minimal disease proximally um, to a site beyond uh, occlusion or aneurysmal disease, uh, which may be um, at any point in the, in the arterial tree along the person's leg. Yep. And obviously these include, you know, what we call fempop bypasses, femtibial bypasses, the tibial vessels, popliteal bypasses, uh, basically any arterial reconstruction below the inguinal ligament. And Absolutely. yeah, uh, indications, I think they're pretty standard yogi claudication. If it's lifestyle limiting, I think uh, most people would be happy to offer a non-smoker uh, a bypass in that situation. Uh, and, but probably more, um, or maybe not so much more typically, but obviously uh, chronic limb threatening ischemia is a, is a common reason we'd be uh, doing this sort of operation. That's right. For people with tissue loss, rest pain, uh, ulceration, uh, fundamentally um, any form of revascularization is required to, in an attempt for limb salvage. Um, other indications for bypass surgery can include 
aneurysmal disease. Um, and in the context of infringual bypass, we're talking really whether that's um, distal SFA, um, popliteal aneurysms are probably the most common site for that to occur. A final indication for bypass surgery is trauma, especially when someone's had a significant derangement to their not only bony architecture, but underlying arterial tree. Very good. Uh, so how do you like to um, plan the operation, Yogi? What do you see are important parts of the uh, preoperative workup? Yeah, so the important parts of the preoperative workup really begins with a comprehensive history from the patient, um, which begins by understanding uh, their symptomatology. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, the common reasons that we typically perform bypass surgery is in the context of the sequelae of atherosclerotic disease, um, whether that be lifestyle limiting claudication or chronic limb-threatening ischemia. Um, this is usually adjudged by uh, getting a feel for um, the presence of claudication. And typically, uh, in most people, this can be in the form of calf claudication as um, symptomology is typically a level below the site of their primary arterial pathology. Other potential causes, as we mentioned earlier, include ulceration, infection, and tissue loss. Um, which um, can also, which is also underpinned by the fact that they have a degree of arterial insufficiency itself. Um, questions typically in, in, uh, arise in terms of deterioration of their walking distance, the onset of symptoms, um, previous interventions that have been performed from an arterial perspective in the past, uh, as well as the underlying etiology of their presenting lower symptom, especially if they have uh, chronic limb-threatening ischemia, whether that's trauma or uh, in the context of potentially underlying neuropathy that can also contribute to that. Um, further to this, questions in regards to um, medication use, particularly prescription of best medical therapy, which uh, typically consists of aspirin as well as uh, statin therapy uh, is vital. Um, as well as um, previous attempts at exercise rehabilitation, uh, uh, especially for those who are uh, who present with claudication as their primary um, symptom for consideration. Clinical examination then follows, uh, whereby um, a patient is assessed uh, really um, with a focus on the lower limb. Uh, looking for evidence of arterial insufficiency, um, which begins with an assessment of looking at the leg itself, particularly for hair loss, muscle wasting, ulceration, infection, tissue loss, um, or gangrene rather, sorry. Um, and then uh, subsequently an assessment of pulses, um, which uh, in a vascular exam of the lower limb would begin at the groin, um, with a femoral pulse followed by a popliteal and then for assessment of pedal pulses. If there's difficulty with that, use of a handheld Doppler can be used to ascertain whether there is any flow in these vessels. Um, subsequent adjuncts that can also be performed uh, would include looking um, to perform a, a Burgess assessment where the leg is raised 
um, and to look for color change. Typically it goes pale when stressed um, with a reactive hyperemia when the leg is then placed in a dependent position um, and also an ankle brachial index. Other considerations could also be to look for evidence of scars of previous surgical intervention and particularly the question that we often look for is the evidence of previous vein harvesting, uh, whether that's on the side affected or on the other side. Um, and then further to look more proximally, especially within the abdomen in terms of any previous surgical repair that may be in keeping with a more significant aortic reconstruction or and associated groin incisions if that were the case as well. That's usually the start of my assessment, Sam, with, uh, with the history and clinical examination driving that process. Where do you follow from there? So yeah, that's a fairly, fairly comprehensive history and examination. But uh, as always, you're known for your thoroughness. But uh, after, after we do our history and examination, we're pretty keen to uh, then move on to the imaging, which really underpins our operative planning. Um, generally, most of us would um, be looking at three modalities, ultrasound, CT angiogram, or catheter angiogram. The duplex ultrasound, I think, uh, obviously has a fairly important role, but I don't think any of us would be using a duplex to plan um, any form of reconstruction alone, but really guides us into what next. Are we doing an angiogram here? Are we moving on to a CTA? Or do we need some more imaging to work up for a bypass? Uh, my general preference is if I'm uh, doing any bypass above the knee, I think a CTA is generally adequate if you can appreciate on the CT angiogram that the lower limb runoff is suitable. And if there's any question about what's going on uh, below the knee, then, uh, or any question about what exactly is happening with the perfusion, I would then definitely be doing uh, a diagnostic or at least a diagnostic angiogram prior to um, uh, operating. Uh, I also think a CTA is fairly useful to look at your inflow uh, and particularly if you suspected or you felt that you might have to be treating some inflow disease with an endarterectomy or hybrid procedure with an iliac stint as well. Yeah, I, I think some um, combination of all imaging techniques ultimately gets utilised and I agree. Um, typically the ultrasound is the initial modality that uh, a patient is referred with um, and then subsequently, depending on um, a variety of factors, but typically based on the patient's underlying renal function, but often their cardiac dysfunction can also make as a CTA a difficult investigation subsequently, whereby a catheter angiogram may be necessary to help define runoff in a patient. I think a catheter angiogram is necessary when planning a, a tibial or a pedal bypass. Um, before you commit to quite an extensive an operation, you really want to make sure you've got a target that you can aim for, um, and that's fundamental. I think the other aspect um, of imaging really is based upon um, preoperative mapping of your conduit, um, and a majority of surgeons would primarily use an autologous first approach for bypass surgery um, and 
uh, in vascular surgery, that's typically the use of the great saphenous vein, which we share with our cardiac colleagues. Um, often the patient's lower limbs are mapped, uh, bilateral lower limbs are mapped. Um, however, on occasion, uh, upper limb veins may also need to be in interrogated um, uh, to allow for the bypass to occur. Uh, Sam, I, I often think of any form of lower limb uh, revascularization, and particularly with bypass surgery, in the, in the context of five key uh, ideas. And it may be worthwhile um, just briefly touching on each of these. Uh, you mentioned adequacy inflow. Um, yeah. This is uh, this is always a difficult decision as you go into an operation. However, we all have um, uh, we are all very suspicious from the get go that. Um, especially when we see a lesion on imaging preoperatively suggestive of a hemodynamically significant stenosis. Um, for a FEMPOP bypass, what sort of things would you look at proximal to it? Um, and how, how do modern vascular surgeons try and deal with this? So when assessing the inflow, um, I think uh, one of the most important things is examining the patient to make sure they have a good femoral pulse. If the femoral pulse is generally pretty good, we feel like it's of good uh, quality, then almost always that's going to um, correlate with a uh, suitable inflow for a fempop bypass or an infrarenal bypass. Uh, if uh, sometimes, you know, Yogi, the patient's body habitus doesn't allow to easily feel femoral pulse or the common femoral is significantly calcified that requires an endarterectomy, and you, uh, at that stage, can't actually readily determine what the inflow is like above that. Uh, in that case, I uh, use a couple of adjuncts. I would do a duplex ultrasound to see what the phasicity of the inflow is like. So is it a triphasic or biphasic waveform, which generally means that the inflow is suitable? Uh, and also a CT angiogram to look at the, um, if there's significant inflow disease. Uh, often the CTA can show fairly significant calcification. It can be quite difficult to tell if the inflow is adequate or not. And so if you're still not sure, uh, I guess the common theme here is, Yogi, do an angiogram. Yep. And I agree entirely, Sam. I think uh, clinical examination is usually fundamental to allow that, but also interoperatively, um, if you can feel uh, a, a good pulse once you've dissected out and control the vessel, it's usually uh, a very good um, telltale sign of adequacy of info or the commonly used phrase audible bleeding uh, comes into mind. Not the name of a competitive podcast. So, but you, okay, but that's a, that's a reasonable point that you make there, Yogi. Quite often what we'll do is... Um, uh, once we've got the vessel open is take the clamp off and actually have a look at what the inflow is like. And immediately then you can tell it's okay. It's not okay. And if it's not okay, what we usually do at that stage is it on table angiogram and, yeah. and potentially treat the inflow problem at the same time. Yeah. Uh, a lesson for young players is uh, when you've got a senior colleague or uh or consultant to, uh, about to test the info, it's always well, well worthwhile taking Take a step back. back from the step back. Yeah. You've been, been there before, done that. I've been there before. Um, I think the second aspect um, really reflects the adequacy of our flow. Um, 
vascular surgery is really a principle of inflow and outflow. We're always at the mercy of it, uh, continually makes us humble. Um, uh, whilst having adequate arterial inflow um, allows for the um, success of ensuring that flow through the graft is achieved if the outflow vessels are grossly uh, diseased or there is no significant outflow to anything, a.k.a. a desert foot. This can sometimes pose quite a significant challenge as um, the inflow inflow essentially comes up against a wall, uh, which uh, the subsequent outcome there is uh, an increase in back back pressure within the graft itself, which eventually leads to the graft occluding. Um, There is nothing worse, Sam, in what we do where a lot of hard effort time has been put into uh, some form of open revascularization for it not to last as the patient comes off the table. Oh, I wouldn't know you. That's never happened to me. Okay, uh, moving on again. Uh, uh, choice of conduits, Yogi. You're just shaking your head at me in disgust, but that's fine. Choice of conduits. I think autologous, autologous, autologous is the, probably the take-home message here for all of us. Yeah, look, I think um, that's the un- underlying principle, but um, in the environment that you and I are in, often the patient cohort that we do treat um, have underlying um, cardiac issues. It is not uncommon to be faced with the challenge of a patient who's had vein previously harvested for coronary disease um, and alternate sites of vein harvest need to be looked up and specifically um, arm vein then becomes an option. It's important to say at this point that um, if that is the only option, then really the indications for surgery become very important as the patient may only really have one more go at revascularization. Um, There is no point subjecting a claudicant to that um, as claudication per se, the risk of leading to major limb loss from claudication alone is in the ballpark of less than a percent. And so really thinking about why you're subjecting a patient to this surgery will help decide how desperate you are in looking for an alternate source of vein. Um, this, this sort of the, the follow-on from there is that whilst um, autologous um, vein is preferred, um, there are uh, prosthetic options that are also available or semi-prosthetic option, the cryopreserved options. However, uh, comparatively, their long-term patency, especially below the knee, uh, aren't as good arguably above the knee um, prosthetic bypass grafting uh, is probably not too dissimilar um, with alternatives. Um, And whilst the vascular surgical community for a long time has tried to come up with adjuncts to deal with prosthetic bypasses and particularly looking at methods to deal with the distal anastomosis, the overall um, anecdotal evidence is uh, or lit uh, and and medical literature review would suggest that um, they do not do very well, Sam. So yoga, I have a couple of rules. One is um, I won't treat someone for claudication without vein. I think um, put. I know some people do, but I wouldn't use prosthetic for a claudicant. I just think um, 
ultimately you're creating a problem in the future that may be difficult to deal with and they've already got no vein so your options at that stage when the graph goes down are fairly limited and uh, I'll, I'll stop you i'll just stop you there for yeah. a second sam i know yeah. there was definitely a generation of surgeons that would prefer to have done prosthetics bypasses or above above knee because of the equivalent patency um, preserving vein for subsequent intervention I have to say that's not an opinion that's necessarily done routinely in current practice, but there's definitely a school of thought to argue that. Yeah, that's fair enough. I guess my uh, counter argument to that is I saw one of those get infected and it was a disaster. So um, vain, 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 vain. Absolutely. I I agree entirely. So I think there's there's a component of it that uh, looks at uh you know preserving all options for later for further reconstruction but there's also the infection um component and some hospitals have a somewhat high higher infection rate with prosthetic so wash your hands sam wash your hand. <laughs> have you done your hand hygiene module <laughs> so <laughs> yeah i think the infection risk is not insignificant yeah, that's fair and look, um, again, um, often prosthetic options are chosen really at the um, really in desperation, um, and often poses a significant challenge when dealing with concomitant tissue loss or ulceration, as they're less than ideal. Yep. Yeah, that's fair enough. Now, apart from the bypass, as you mentioned previously sam that there is potentially the need for adjunctive procedures to be performed um the most common is typically in the form of a common femoral endarectomy with the hood of the bypass graft going on as a patch um or some variant of that the other extreme is typically um the profundoplasty which um is uh is, is a procedure that vascular surgeons uh, enjoy performing really as a means of preserving the sometimes the only vessel that's going to keep the foot on in, into the long term, as, especially if there's concerns about the long term patency of a bypass graft. Uh, but other adjunctive interventions that can be performed uh, include adjunctive procedures for inflow. Um, so you talked about angioplasty yep. and usually stenting associated with that to try and improve inflow. Um, adjuncts at the anastomoses proximally and distally, uh, whether you patch up the vessel and then put the bypass onto the patch or whether you use the, uh, the graft as the hood or alternatively using some combination of prosthetic at the top because you don't have sufficient vein length to do a patch as well as a bypass. And then at the distal end, um, a whole cacophony of variants of distal and astomotic uh, variants that have been described, Sam. Yep. So, including the Miller cuff, which is a fantastic Australian um, procedure uh, to try and preserve long-term patency for prosthetic bypasses below the knee. However, quite a painful intervention to perform. I, yeah, I think the uh, Miller cuff and sort of the Taylor's patch are. Uh, excellent adjuncts to tibial bypasses. I think um, uh, they make the anastomosis look better on angiography. And I think they, to some degree, improve the uh, compliance between the 
bypass and the outflow. So um, my general rule is basically um, whenever I do a tibial anastomosis is to patch out the anastomosis and then do the graft, uh, the graft, uh, or sew the graft onto the patch. And I think um, uh, I've had sort of uh, anecdotally fairly good results doing that. It's a bit of extra time, but uh, just another um, adjunct to your reconstruction. And I think the point to be made there is you've got to have sufficient vein to do all of that. And yeah. Often, often you do, but occasionally you don't. Yeah. And and that's the compromises that you constantly make interoperatively to try and maintain long term patency. The um the final sort of um thing to talk about would be the various techniques for bypasses um in terms of the lay of the. Uh, the lay of the graph, but also the variance that may take place with the uh, bypass itself. Um, so, uh, Sam, you can you can have reverse graphs, non-reverse graphs. Uh, you can have it anatomically tunneled. You can have it subcutaneously tunneled. Um, you can splice vein. You can use arm vein and splice that with leg vein. You can use leg or arm vein and splice that with prosthetic really it's just um, pick your own ending as you go along here. So Yogi, I've got a question for you and I don't know the answer to this, but why do you think we prefer as a whole reverse long saphenous vein? Because then you put the smallest bit up the top and we're constantly coming back to balloon. Yeah, look, I think um, the real fundamental reason we do reverse graphs is predominantly because of the, uh, directionality of valves within the vein itself and the idea that if we plummet in anatomically then um, you've got valves that are going to pre present a resistance to flow uh, by reversing the graft um, you can have forward flow through the vein graft with no real hopefully hemodynamic effect of the valve itself now sam you make a great point which is that often the caliber of the vein is different at the top and the bottom um, and as such, um, sometimes to match uh, the caliber of the vessel the guide pass graft is going onto, it is often best that the vein graft is not reversed. And so we have evolved in vascular surgery and for a, and for a long time, the idea of using a valvular time um, is something that people use routinely in practice to disrupt those valves to allow for forward flow. Needless to say that introducing a valvular tome also introduces the potential injury to intrinsically to the valve or to the, the vein uh, wall itself, uh, which then um, can stymie the long-term patency of that. However, in good hands and in someone that does it routinely, uh, it can be an excellent operation in itself. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I've certainly seen that yoga, the valvular tome can split the vein or tear the vein and now you're... Um procedures become uh, much more tedious uh in situ bypasses yogi yeah look sam um it's not a procedure that i've performed routinely but i've seen performed um after you've plumbed on the top end um you're obliged to disrupt the valves within the graft and then subsequently once you've also then performed the bottom end um, you then have to angiographically 
identify the various tributaries that arise off the vein itself and ligate them individually. Um, the proponents of this would argue that this that this means you have uh, you have your normal groin incision and subsequent distal anastomosis incision uh, with smaller cuts made to identify the tributaries themselves. Um, however, um, it does involve um, the use of um, angiography and does in, does prolong your procedure time. Uh, so, again, it, it's in the hands of those performing the intervention as to whether this is the best to forward. Um, a subsequent uh, correlate, uh, correlation to this, Sam, would be to ask you about your incisions that you make. Whilst we typically make a, an incision for the proximal exposure and the distal exposure, harvesting vein can often involve a long incision from the groin down to below the knee. But um, some people utilize a skip graft, oh, sorry, skipped in, skip incision rather. Um, what are your thoughts on skip incisions? Yeah, so what uh, skip incisions are for people who don't know, you're basically, while you're harvesting the vein, you would leave part of the tissue intact and basically means that you have to harvest a bit of the vein above and below that little skin bridge. Um, and the aim is to, yeah, leave that skin bridge intact. And the idea is that that skin bridge then takes the tension off the wound edge, particularly that posterior flap that can hang with gravity. And the idea again is to improve wound healing. I think Realistically, it probably does make a difference to have them, but how much of a difference, I'm not sure. Probably not a big difference. And it adds actually quite a lot of time and uh, makes the operation a lot more tedious. And for that reason, I don't do them. But I can see that it could have a role. Um, I think, you know, you can replace the uh, effectiveness or you can simulate the effect by having uh, good dressings to take the pressure off. And, you know, if, Yogi, if you have uh, good nurses on the ward who look after wounds appropriately, that makes a difference too. So I could see they have a role, but I don't do it. I think it just adds a lot of time. I, I routinely use skip incisions, um, Sam, and I like to do it so I isolate the groin wound from everything else. Yep. Uh, the, I think one of the big disasters with this sort of uh, operation is if you get a wound infection or complication, particularly a dehiscence or breakdown at the groin. Um, if that extends along the entire length of the wound, then uh, you're left with quite a significant wound issue. Um, the only big concern I have with skip incisions that is often where you leave a segment of tissue untouched, the so-called bridge, is often there is a tributary that arises, which can then be painful as you're trying to harvest the vein. But so it's, the it's most a small one to get. Yeah, and you know the mo the typical um, tributary is usually the one at the knee crease. However, um, I I have to say that um, I find it both rewarding and satisfying to be able to do that without creating um, enormous scars. Um, or a selective scar really uh, to try and assist with uh, the potential issues with wound care post-operatively. So do you, um, how many bridges would you leave you? 
if I can, two in the thigh, uh, and then one across the knee crease, if if I can, ideally. Often it ends up being just one in the thigh and then one across the knee crease. Okay. Do you feel it adds a lot of time or not really? Not particularly. I mean, uh, I think the other important point here to make is uh, a nice way of doing this operation is with a, uh, with a trainee. Um, it gives them the ability to demonstrate their uh, technique um, to harvest or well to do an adequate exposure whether that's top or bottom and then harvest vein and working in a two team setup where you have a team at the top and a team at the bottom um, this can allow for quite an efficient process of performing a bypass uh, with um, adequate harvest of vein as required okay yep fair enough uh, just make sure you got two diathermies. I think that's the that's the important thing. <laughs> yep. uh, no one likes to share. No. Okay, Yogi. So you've uh, you've got multiple bridges and skip incisions. You got your vein out. You got your artery out. Uh, how do you like to? Um, first of all, when do you tunnel the vein? How do you tunnel it? and walk me through that process yeah so once i've um exposed the vein skeletonized it and satisfied that it is going to be the conjugative choice uh harvest the vein by ligating it in continuity proximally and distally and oversewing the ends um with a tour of icral usually a suture um suture ligated to do that mm-hmm um, I then hydrodilate the vein um, using heparinized saline on the table um, to allow me to confirm the adequacy of the caliber of the conduit, but also to identify any potential tributaries that have not been adequately ligated and any potential uh, venotomies accidentally that have been performed during the harvest itself. Uh, I also then take the opportunity to orientate the, the vein itself and mm-hmm. Uh, to do this, uh, I typically perform a reversed vein graft, uh, and as such, I would find the distal end and use the pots to identify this end with a small nick. Um, once I once I'm happy with my conduit, the next thing I turn to is the process of tunneling. Um, from the below knee to the above knee popliteal artery, I do this with uh, finger dissection. Um, we talk about fingers that kiss um, behind the knee as a, as a technique to try and create a, a blunt tunnel, uh, which is then marked with a vessel loop um, so that it can be um, subsequently returned to. So Yogi, sorry to interrupt. When we say uh, tunnel anatomically, I think we may have mentioned this actually in our popliteal artery aneurysm uh, episode, but what do you, what do we mean by that? Uh, so to tunnel anatomically, we're tunneling in the line of the vessel. Um, and so from going from the above knee to below knee, popliteal artery, that would mean passing behind the knee in the anatomical plane that it sits within the popliteal fossa. Um, and then to tunnel from the groin to the above knee, um, popliteal artery, this is typically done with an instrument. Um, there are... Um, specific tunnelers that can be utilized to achieve this. Um, however, um, th- this can take in the form of a, a named tunneler or um, sometimes a double action ram, please. 
uh, can be also utilized uh, to create the tunnel. Once the tunnel is created, the instrument's left in the tunnel, and this is typically done in a sub-sartorial plane, um, so underneath the sartorial, uh, sartorius muscle itself. Sorry. Yep. Um, once I've tunneled, um, the next step would be um, to subsequently give the patient a dose of anticoagulation, uh, which interoperatively is intravenous heparin, and I use a weight-based um, uh, process to do this, um, typically at 100 units per kilogram. Uh, just quickly, Sam, before we move on, um, we should talk about the fact that tunneling varies, especially when we're going from a popliteal artery to a pedal vessel. Um, uh, this is typically tunneled in a subcutaneous plane uh, because of the complexities that can arise uh, with tunneling it alternatively. Um, however, there are multiple variants um, and occasionally uh, this can be going through the interosseous membrane for an anterior tibial approach or uh, a fibulotomy for a lateral perineal approach, um, which is um, high-level operating. <laughs> so because I did one recently, Yogi. Um, that's right. I mean, there are multiple ways to tunnel and multiple different uh, vascular exposures and sometimes some more unique vascular exposures. But um, uh, I think one thing I've realized recently in terms of, so I, I sort of look at tunneling as one of three things, anatomical, obviously, as you mentioned, and then you have subcutaneously and then subfascially. I think with um, subcutaneous versus subfascially, I think tunneling a vein graft subcutaneously can actually be quite traumatic because you're sort of trying to drag it through that fatty tissue. And for that reason, I actually think uh, subfascial is better because you're sort of in that subfascial plane just above the muscles and there's a bit more space there and the vein graft can um, glide a bit more easily. I don't know if that's something you've ever noticed, Yogi, but it's something I've noticed uh, doing a bypass recently. I've got to say um, a, lot of, a lot of the surgeons I've ever worked with will... Um stress significantly especially with pedal bypass um mm. if the if the growl fashion because of the tension that uh is then placed within the vein graft itself mm. uh, any extra tension that can arise from a space that typically did not have the vein graft in before uh can provide extrinsic compression on the graft itself which can pose problems um yep often you have to release the fascia to, to create the space. And you're right, it is traumatic, but you'd hope without breaching the skin in that region, um, you may be just in luck. Yeah. And the other thing to say is about tunneling, tunneling subfascially, the other point to make is uh, at the knee and at the ankle, the fascia is continuous with, or contiguous with the joint. So it has to exit the, sub, the fascial plane at those levels and then be tunneled subcutaneously for a portion and then re-into the fascia. Yeah. And uh, I think whatever technique you utilize, as long as you're aware of the potential fa um, follies that can occur, uh, reducing the potential long-term patency of the graft, um, uh, then your whatever technique you utilize will be fine. So Yogi, um, you've done your bypass, you've plumbed it. So I should also ask, do you 
it sounds like you tunnel before you anastomose. Do you ever tunnel? What was, you know, the term we would use is tunnel on the pressure. So you've done your anastomosis and then tunnel. Uh, so, sorry. So I create my tunnel, but I don't tunnel the vein graft until, right, okay. uh, until the top end's done. Uh, the reason I do that is so that I can again um, introduce uh, heparinized blood um, into the circuit, ensure that the vein has adequate, adequate hemostasis and correct any uh, potential tributaries or uh, accidental venotomies that may exist. Um, also, by doing so, I could tunnel with the graft um, dilated um, and so this provides for a bit more texture as the graph passes through the um, into the lower limb itself yep completion angio do you do a completion angiogram uh, selectively uh, Sam so um, I would perform a, a routine um, uh, completion angiogram for distal um, and pedal bypasses um, especially if I'm concerned that the patient has questionable airflow. However, um, uh, I, for other types of bypasses, I would consider if there was an interoperative issue that I need to resolve, such as an inflow lesion that needed to be addressed prior for the prior to the patient coming off the table. Yep, uh, my personal preference is to do a, a completion angiogram for anything below the knee. Yeah, I think uh, that that would be in keeping with my thoughts alone. Would you ever heparinize someone after a bypass? Look, I think um, I, I think I mean, that falls. You shouldn't I, I think, have to, right? That's that's, that, the, that, that's right. I think heparinizing someone after bypass is ritual thinking. Um, essentially, you've gone into it knowing that this is a high risk bypass for failure. And um, you're plumbed on and you're still concerned. Uh, and so you're hoping that uh, the bypass will run by keeping it um, thin. Uh, however, uh, I, I'm not certain that that provides a great long-term strategy, um, to be honest no. with you. And the question then often comes up, how long do you wish to anticoagulate the patient? What dose are you going to anticoagulate them at? Um, and so they, they pose extra complexities to the care of the patient. Yeah, I think the uh, take-home message for any potential vascular nurses or vascular ward nurses listening, if a patient arrives to the ward after a bypass with a heparin infusion running, there's likely a technical problem somewhere with the graft and it's somewhat tenuous and uh, the surgeon is basically just trying to do everything he or she can to keep the graft running. I think there are other adjuncts that often also come into play with the post-operative management of uh, bypass grafts, including maintaining a systolic blood pressure over a certain threshold. Within my unit, we typically aim for a systolic over 100 and try and minimize episodes of um, hypotension post-operatively to ensure that uh, there's adequate forward flow through the graft at all times, um, ensuring that patients are on best medical therapy, um, ensuring that there is a process for regular lower limb neurovascular observations um, and that regular patient assessment is performed. Just before we take the patient off the table though, Sam, um, I'm, I'm 
I do drain everyone. I put in a drain at the top and the bottom. Um, and I think um, I do that more out of my own paranoia with post-operative complications and particularly bleeding associated with um, the anastomoses or adjacent segments of vein. Um, and I think most people would probably do something similar, I would think. Yeah, ha- happens to all of us, Yogi. Th- that's right. Um, yeah. I, I selectively reverse depending on the circumstance of the patient's heparin. So normally we could can reverse the effect of heparin using protamine. However, often the duration for the, the anastomoses alone can mean that the heparin effect has worn off by the time the patient's come off the table, which doesn't always necessitate the need for protamine. Okay, Yogi. So, uh, You've done your two anastomoses, uh, you've got your drains in, you haven't heparinized, but um, the patient's now on the ward day one post femdistal. Uh, your registrars are off sick. Uh, so you, you have to do the ward around yourself. What are the things you look at uh, uh, when you see the patient on the ward day one post bypass? Yeah. Um... So the, the first thing that often you get given is the observation charts of the patient's observations of the trends of their hemodynamic stability on the ward. Hopefully some blood tests have been done and they're cooking, but um, you want to know what the patient's hemoglobin's at, um, but also their baseline uh, bloods, including their electrolytes, urea, creatinine, um, coagulation profile, if that's appropriate as well. Um, when it comes to the patient itself, uh, first of all, an explanation of the procedure that was performed, the outcome obtained, and also um, their progress overnight. Um, but also, I think early on, it's very important to educate the patient in terms of their trajectory in hospital and the expectation for them to um, graduate their ability to, first of all, weight bear and subsequently mobilize through the leg. I, um, I'm a very conservative um, surgeon despite <laughs> my age. Um, and um, most most of my patients post bypass in the first day would aim to just sit out into a chair with their leg elevated, um, and I keep drains in for the first day, and then day two I progress them by then taking their drains out, getting them up and mobilizing. Uh, during this period of time, I also typically leave their catheter in as well. I um, would start um, DVT prophylaxis uh, day one post op. Um, but, um, the other thing I also like to do is to, uh, use compression, um, to try and reduce the potential issues with lymphatic obstruction that occurs with dissection, but also a potential venous disruption that can occur with exposure. Um, and so typically would begin with either double A, a TB grip, um, to the baloney segment or a, a grade one compression stocking, um, to try and assist with swelling, but also to educate the patient about keeping their leg elevated accordingly. Um, the um, the post-operative care really for a patient following fempop bypass graft, apart from the hemodynamics and their medical therapy, is really about ensuring wound complications are avoided, and that's a whole of team approach from the medical to nursing staff to try and. Uh, educate not only the patient but all those involved in the care of the patient to try and identify problems early. It's basically the nurses trying to tell the registrars to 
stop taking the dressings off, right? That's right. And, you know, you and I both worked in a unit which were which was renowned for being particularly um, strict about the time frame in which dressings were removed. Um, and I think it, the rookie error um, from junior registrars is to take down dressings on a daily basis um, because they don't necessarily add to the assessment of the patient itself. So, yeah, yeah I think that's a fairly uh, comprehensive discussion about uh, infraringual bypass. Yeah, look, it's a, it's an area that I, um, as you probably can appreciate, am passionate, love it. I think um, it's the prototypical operation for a vascular surgeon. Um, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer that uh, fempop bypasses have a role here now into the future. Even if something great is invented endovascularly, I'll still do a fempop, Sam. I think, Yogi, despite me calling you a loser at the start of the episode, I think there's something, uh, there's some part of us that gets, you know, the instant gratification from doing a bypass and feeling a strong pulse in the foot. There's nothing quite like it from a vascular surgeon's perspective. It's um, it's a big tick to say that you've done a good job. And, yeah. Like- uh, yeah, you called me a loser, but the big smile on your face just then tells me everything. You're just <laughs> as much of a loser as I am. Maybe, maybe on that point, Yogi, we'll, we'll end the podcast. And uh, uh, Yogi, for more information, where where can people find us? Well, you can find us at Twitter at um, Vascular FM. Uh, our website is Vascular.fm. And um, you can also find us on Instagram at The Retrograde Approach. Yogi, until the next one. Sam, thank you very much.